Hello, and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And if you guys have noticed, I have actually been away for a couple days, and this was not because of a burnout or a hiatus or because I was drowning in books, but because I was sick. And it was really hard because I've been keeping up so well with my reading list. I've been doing about three, sometimes even four or five books a day since I started this project. And I've turned into kind of like a learning machine. It's been exciting and exhilarating. I wake up each morning, I have a topic in mind, and for the rest of the day, I just kind of shove books in my brain and learn a ton about these topics that I'm interested in. And then Thursday afternoon, I start to try to do my reading and I'm completely unable to. I can't think, I can't concentrate. The the facts are slipping off of my mind like water off of a duck's back. And slowly I realize that this is not some sort of mental problem. This is not me malingering. It's that my girlfriend gave me a cold. Uh, But I'm back, I'm better. I had a good day of reading yesterday and I am ready to tell you guys uh, what I've learned. So we've been talking about the Industrial Revolution for the past couple days. The idea that sometime between 1750 and 1850, a combination of technological, social, governmental, and financial innovations coalesced to produce an explosion in the production of goods. And today we're going to be talking about another quite related revolution, the revolution in consumer goods the consumption revolution, the revolution in consumer society. And to give you guys this movement in a snapshot, I want to talk to you guys about furniture. So in the 17th century, people got their furniture mostly through inheritance. Uh, New furniture was incredibly expensive. If you wanted to set up a household, you'd wait for a family member to die and you would inherit furniture that way. In the 18th century, a newly married couple would move into their house and together they would furnish the house. They would buy the furniture for the house together. In the 19th century, this would happen. You'd get the furnishing of a new house on moving in and on marriage. But throughout the couple's marriage, they would continue to buy new furniture based on changing fashion and taste. They would upgrade their furniture over and over again. So this, in a nutshell, is the process of the consumer revolution. Over the same time period of the Industrial Revolution, maybe a little earlier, maybe 1700 to 1800, an increasing number of people had the opportunity of buying an increasing variety of consumer goods. So we're going to be talking about the kinds of consumer goods that people bought and how this had an effect on society and politics, what caused it, and how we can tie this in to some of the other themes that we've been charting through this podcast. So first, let's talk about fashion. In the 18th century, fashion begins to speed up. I think in like 1710, Mandeville, this uh, political economist who we don't need to go into right now, suggested that the fashion and clothing moved about once every decade. Well, this speed increases so that by the 19th century, fashion, like today, is an annual thing. There were yearly changes in fashion. We can see this change in how British people got their idea of fashion from. 
In the 1700s, in like the early 18th century, people would get fashion dolls shipped annually from Paris that would show the latest styles in clothing and hair. And these, we shouldn't imagine them as like tiny little six inch things. These were mannequins. These were sometimes life-size or close to life-size, and women who bought them could often take the clothes off of the mannequin's back, get them uh, uh, altered, and wear them just as it is. And so in the early 18th century, fashion comes from the French court. People in Britain are trying to imitate what the cooler people in France were doing. And the people who could do this were the people who had the money to ship full-size mannequins from Paris to London or wherever. And this was an incredibly important trade. Even at the height of war between Britain and France, when Britain was blocking imports of all sorts of things from France, the mannequin trade was allowed to continue so that the British women would know what the cooler French women were wearing. But by the middle of the century, British people had started to make their own fashion, and it was supplanting slowly this courtly domination of fashion by the French. So how did they do this? Well, British manufacturers would take out advertisements in newspapers, telling their readers about the cool things that they were making, about new cuts of dresses, about belt buckles, about new shoes, about this new growing cornucopia of things that were on sale. And they would hold sales at Easter in London, right before everybody who was in London for the important London season would leave again for the country. And these sales would mean that all the important, rich, fancy people who were in London would buy that year's latest fashion and then take it to the country where all the country people eager to emulate their betters would go and buy it from the manufacturers. And another important thing is, is who is being targeted here. Fashion is moving from purely the domain of the super, super rich to being something that is within the reach of more and more people. We have a new sort of class emerging, the middle classes, who are not like the super elites and who are not like the laboring poor, who might have enough money to buy a new shirt every year or two, who might have enough money to get some nice stuff for them and their family. And these are now the people who are being targeted by British manufacturers. So, by the end of the century, the courtly fashion doll from France had been replaced by a number of British innovations. She had been replaced by fashion magazines, which were printed in Britain, showing the latest fashions of manufacturers. It was replaced by fashion plates drawn by British designers. And instead of this big, expensive mannequin from France, people were making miniature paper fashion dolls that they dressed up in tiny little miniature textiles to show the designs of the year. And we shouldn't just be thinking about clothes when we talk about this. There was fashion for everything in the 18th century. There were fashionable things in pottery, in architecture, in shaving straps, in flowers, in chairs, in drugs. There was even a fashionable movement for the breeds of dogs that people had, which is why when you look at it, many of the breeds of dogs that we have today were first bred in the 18th century, created by this fashionable impulse by the new British consumer society. And this new 
consumerist impulse was not confined to the island of Britain alone, because British manufacturers also exported the stuff that they were making to British colonies and to the continent, and they marketed their goods. They did not sit idly by and wait for the tide of fashion to come to them. They created the new tide of fashion, and they did not copy the French courtly aristocratic fashion that had been so in the mode. Instead, they created a new view of what manufacturers were. They said that Britain was commercial, not courtly, that they were scientific, not traditional, that they were new, not old. The idea was that this new rising power in Britain did not look at the, the, the givens of the world. Instead, they looked at natural laws using science and reason to find the inner truth of things. And this was, surprisingly enough, told through things like belt buckles or buttons or clothes that were all a product of this new kind of scientific production happening in Britain. Another way that we can see this rise of consumerism is through food. It may be easiest to see uh, this new kind of fashionable consumer society in clothes and flowers, but food, this new consumer market for food, was present even in the lowest ranks of people. The most important kinds of these foods were the tropical groceries uh, that were coming in in the 18th century in an increasing flood. These were things that we know very well today and are some of the greatest comforts of our daily lives. Coffee, tea, sugar, and tobacco. And these went from the 17th to the 19th centuries from exotic medicines that were used only by the most uh, aggressively avant-garde to cool luxury consumables that were bought by the upper and middle classes to middle-class necessities, and then to necessities. So these things, coffee, tea, sugar, and tobacco, became increasingly important to everyday British life. These were not just things that people drank because it was conspicuous consumption. No, it became a bedrock of how people lived their days. By the middle of the 18th century, people were remarking that even ditch diggers insist on taking a tea break in the middle of the day, sweetened, of course, by sugar. This is amazing because a hundred years previous, tea was a complete novelty in Britain that was only within the reach of a very, very storied few. So two things to note here, because we're going to be talking about the consumption of these tropical groceries more and more. The first is that all of these new kinds of food were imported. You could not buy tea in Scotland. This meant that people's everyday lives was connected very intimately with the empire, with international trade, with countries that people had never seen before and never had a chance to see. But it also meant that if you wanted to participate in this new, wonderful consumer society flush with coffee, tea, sugar, and chocolate, and tobacco, you needed to participate in the market. In the 17th century, it'd be entirely possible for rural people to get the things that they needed without going to the market, without explicitly buying and selling things. But now, if you wanted to have any of these fashionable consumer goods, you needed to go off and buy them with money from merchants who participated in international trade. The second thing to take note of is that these foodstuffs were really intimately connected to developments in more durable objects 
like the pottery industry. There's some good feedback loops between these because you don't drink your coffee and your tea or your chocolate out of a pewter teacup. You drink it out of a porcelain teacup. You smoke your tobacco out of a clay pipe made in Gouda. You measure out your sugar from a clay sugar bowl with a silver spoon. All of these new industries are feeding back and forth within one another, spurring each one on to new kinds of inventions and innovations. They call this the invention of breakfast because the way that we eat our breakfast on porcelain plates with coffee and chocolate started in the 18th century. And it's important to note that these new consumer goods, a lot of them are drugs. Well, all of the tropical commodities are drugs except for sugar. And this means that people in this new consumer society had a greater access to different kinds of altered mental states. Now, this isn't frivolous. This isn't like a high school student talking about how cool it is people smoked weed in the past. It actually had, I think, great effects on society. Because in the 17th century, if you wanted to get high, you basically could just get drunk and that was it. But starting into the 18th century, increasingly large numbers of people had a choice between what kind of altered state that they wanted. And the choice that they made is really telling for the story of greater consumerism, because the choice that a lot of people made is to give up beer and wine, which used to be the drug of choice for people. Beer and wine, of course, make you tipsy. They make you happy, but not exactly productive. And they gave it up for new kinds of drugs like coffee, tobacco, tea, and chocolate, which helped people work harder and longer. It helped you stay awake. It helped you think. It helped you be productive so that you could get more money, so that you could buy more consumer goods. Remember when we were talking about the Industrial Revolution a couple days ago, and I said that one of the most interesting things about 18th century economic growth is that only about a fifth of it came from increased productivity and efficiency. Four-fifths of it came from more inputs, including the input of more labor. When we think about how people manage to increase their labor inputs so much, we should think of them drinking tea and coffee in the morning instead of beer. And it's also important to note that towards the end of the 18th century, there was a new drug that was becoming increasingly used by a greater proportion of the population. And it was a great drug, a miracle drug, a drug that promised to cure diseases and end pain and help medicine. And it's still used today, opium. We've spoken a bit about British people pushing opium in China, but opium was an important part of British life as well. It was an essential uh, component of the 19th century medicine cabinet. Before 1830, you could buy it anywhere, at your corner grocery store, at the druggist, uh, over mail order, no prescription needed. And it was prescribed for everything, from colicky babies to toothache to dyspepsia to depression. And the amazing thing, of course, is that it worked. Opium and morphine are amazing drugs. They can cut through pain like a knife, and they make people who are just feeling vaguely ill much better. Remember, medical science was still kind of less of a science and more of hacking at people and putting leeches on them, and so people suffered from chronic aches and pains. They had toothaches that wouldn't be cured, backaches, uh, weird belly problems because all their food was adulterated, 
people were just kind of achy and whiny, and opium worked to fix that. Working class people began to use opium to curb the pain of work, or when they couldn't get enough money for beer. Opium use went also to the very top. The King George IV used opium to calm down after his mammoth drinking binges. Florence Nightingale uh, used morphine intravenously to, to help with her chronic back pain. And there were dissolute poets like Coleridge and De Quincey who used opium not only to help with chronic pain, but also to transport themselves to new realities. Even Charles Dickens used opium towards the end of his life. Opium was really, really common, and the amounts of opium addiction, especially among women who were often in charge of the pharmaceutical cabinet, are probably much, much greater than we can even estimate right now. But it's important to note that opium fit with the pattern of every other consumable good we've discussed so far. It was advertised, it was marketed, it was given in brand names, and pushed directly to the people in an extension of this consumer revolution. And this consumer revolution didn't just touch objects, it touched society as well. And we can see these changing values from looking at politics. Now, more than ever, we can see the close connection between objects and politics. When you walk down the street and you see somebody in a red hat with white writing, you know what they stand for. They're a Trump supporter and they want to see America made great again. And it's a perfect political symbol. The, the, it's proletarian, it's public, it's loud, it's kind of not slick. It exactly sums up what the Trump campaign was all about. And in the 18th century, we have our own Trump, our own controversial firebrand who appeals to the unheard middle classes. His name was John Wilkes. He was a cross-eyed libertine, rich, wild, sexual, and dangerous, involved in more scandals than you can wave a stick at. He was bigoted and a continuous critic of the government. His problem was that a bunch of immigrants came over the border, storming into government, and they were taking all of our jobs. The people were Scots, um, particularly George III's teacher and minister, Lord Butte. And Wilkes hated the facts that the Scots were flowing into London and taking all the good patronage positions, and he published a magazine, The North Britain, to expose the corruption that was going on in the center of power. In the 45th issue of The North Britain, he explicitly called out the king for making a bad peace deal, and this set off a huge political crisis. As Wilkes was set out to be elect arrested, but then he got elected as member of parliament, and MPs couldn't be arrested, and then the election was vacated, and it was incredibly complicated and lasted for years. We'll deal with it later. The important thing to note is that during this time of political crisis, Wilkes's cause was a popular phenomenon. People all over Britain supported Wilkes, and they did so in increasingly public ways. And interesting for this episode, they did so through consuming stuff, through buying things. So this middle-class, club-going, tavern-going people who were wild about Wilkes showed their support through buying things that were emblazoned with Wilkesite symbols. You had belt buckles with the number 45 on them, 
Remember, North Britain 45 was the issue of the magazine that got Wilkes into that trouble. You had cameos and chains with the number 45. People had mugs for beer, the bottom of which was the number of 45. So you could toast Wilkes and the 45 and liberty and freedom and all that. People made wigs with 45 curls. There were colors that represented the Wilkes cause, cockades, and an incredibly innovative thing, the commemorative plate. People would buy these porcelain plates which had new transfer printed pictures of Wilkes on them with Wilkesite slogans, and they would eat off of these plates and display them to show how they supported the cause. At clubs and taverns, Wilkes supporters would get together to drink 45 toasts to Wilkes out of their Wilkes themes mugs wearing Wilkes colored cockades. So politics became increasingly like the consumer goods that people bought. It was advertised, it was marketed, it was symbolized through mass produced objects. So what caused these changes? What caused the consumer revolution? Well, first, there was a changing intellectual and cultural environment where people started to see that consumption was not necessarily an evil. It wasn't necessarily morally wrong, and furthermore, it might actually be healthy for society. We'll bracket that and talk about it in a tiny second. There's also changes to the social structure. In the 18th century, we have the technical term is a compression of socioeconomic distance which means that there wasn't a huge drop-off between the rich and the poor like in France. Instead, you had a slow gradation from super-rich to rich to middle-class to lower-middle-class to laborer to poor to pauper. And this meant two things. First, it meant the greater proportion of the population had money to buy the kind of everyday consumer goods on which this consumer revolution was based. The second thing was that there was more competition to show your status as there were more rungs to go up and down on in the ranks. A middle-class person eager to look slightly more middle-class might be a lot more motivated to buy fashionable public consumer goods like new clothes. Another cause of these changes was the fact of London. London was the biggest city in the world, and it wasn't just big, it had a ton of migration. One in seven people in the 18th century lived in London at some point in their lives. This was rural elites who came down to London every year for the parliamentary season, domestic servants who came to make money and to, so that they can get married, workers and dock workers and sailors and government men, all of them were drawn by the irresistible gravity of London. And in London, they learned this new kind of consumer society. In London, they went to the coffee houses where they drank coffee out of porcelain. They read newspapers on the streets. They saw people discussing politics in new ways. In London, there were stores of every kind. As we imagine the streets of London, we should imagine them hung with these street signs, with pictures of what's being sold inside. Uh, they, they were pictures because there was a large number of illiterate people who needed to know what was going on inside the shops. So at the sign of the frying pan, you might get iron goods. At the sign of the horn and trumpet, you might get brass goods. At the sign of three covered chairs, you would get 
furniture. These shops sold everything from honey to ice cream to clogs to clocks to coach springs to dogs. There was a huge market in London, and when people moved to London, they became educated in this new consumer society. But even though you had this huge central city, the entire nation was knit together not only by migration, but by better communication, by roads and canals and newspapers. People could participate vicariously in the city of London by reading newspapers and becoming corresponding members of London societies, by sending letters to their friends and relations in London to hear the news, by setting up clubs and societies in their own towns in the image of London. So if you were a colonial person, say in Boston, you could still see what people were doing in London because you could get the London newspapers from the packet ships every time they came in Boston. You could send letters to London and receive replies. You could make societies and coffee houses in the mode of what was happening in London. And this brought the new culture of London to everybody's doorstep. It acted as a force multiplier for this new consumer society. And of course, there's the fact that Britain had this empire. It was able to get tropical groceries from places like China and cotton from places like America. So what should we make of all this desire? What should we make of the effect of this consumer revolution? And I want to connect the story about the consumer revolution to something that we talked about earlier, the rise of the fiscal military state and the giant pool of money that fed it. Remember, Britain needed to wage wars, and it did that by creating a lot of government debt. This is the giant pool of money. Rich people and middle class people invested in this government debt because they were confident that it would be paid off. They were confident it would be paid off because it was funded debt. Each tranche of debt was connected with a different tax. How were these taxes levied? Well, the most important taxes were the excise taxes, which were levied on consumer goods like tobacco, beer, tea, coffee, candles, soap, glass, and so on. What links these all together? Well, some of them are addictive and some of them are necessities. And this means that all of them are heavily desired. Technically, they're price inelastic. As you increase the price, consumption does not fall down as quickly as you'd expect. This means that you can tax them without consumption falling off, which means that they're a good handle for taxes, which is why the British government could tax them so much. This also meant that if you wanted the state to stay afloat, if you wanted the great pool of money to continue to make a good rate of return, if you wanted the British state to continue to win in its wars against France, then you needed to change your opinion about consumption. Consumption was no longer an evil that drained money away from the state. Instead, consumption was a public good that held up the state so that it could continue. Thanks very much for joining me on this uh, episode of Making of Historian. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the intro and outro music and to Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps. Share us on social media. Uh, do all those things that you do for things that you like on the internet. 
I'll see you guys tomorrow.